Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Tuesday, July 18th, a Tuesday. Shaking things up here, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm a little ashamed to admit I am once again attached to the world by the uh, digits of my fingers. My phone is working again, and every time I go to open it, I feel some sort of... Like, I feel the pull. I feel Mm. what it's doing to me in a a way I wasn't aware of before having a week of just not using it at all. I hate it, and I get captured every day. It's just... It, it it's the worst trick in the world where you know it's working and it continues to work on you. Yep. Yep. Well, that's stupid and terrible enough, but always looking to take it one step further. This one feels a little specific to you and I, or at least I see it that way. I'm curious if you will as well. Uh, so recently, Dom, uh, headline dominating the news was the striking down of affirmative action by the Supreme Court. This is part of a broad discussion happening largely in America, but around the world in education, as like this public education experiment is still just that, like a relatively new experiment as far as like the history of education goes. Um, so And there's a lot of different wrinkles, nuances, back and forth, uh, places of momentum research. The one I want to talk about today is the limiting of algebra in certain American districts at the middle school level to increase racial uh, equity results. So basically, I think the way the American school system works a little different than Canada in that it seems you have a lot more course selection a lot earlier on and that math is something you course select for throughout all of high school not just whereas in canada it's like we have grade 9 math we have grade 10 math we have grade 11 functions and then you can choose to take advanced functions and calculus in grade 12 but there's really no way of getting out of that math in the first three years and it's all the same course you just have to take it uh, in the us it's more like specific courses that eventually peak at calculus uh, so a part of this system involves some middle schools offering algebra early uh, so like higher academic achieving kids can start this math process earlier and it makes getting calculus done in time for university a lot more manageable um but some like polling and surveying have found that a lot of these grade eight classes grade seven classes are like more white dominated um and so one solution flouted in California and then in Cambridge, a district in Massachusetts, uh, has just been like, stop offering them to everyone. Uh, so then like no one can get it. And then everyone has a harder time in high school, except of course, it's not everyone. It's just kids in public school, kids in private school are have, have like school boards that are not captured by this sort of thinking and uh, just want to achieve the best academic results. Um, so the it's really an incentive for rich parents who are maybe on the fence about private public education um, to have one more incentive to go towards public education. Man, I forgot to start the timer. I'd set to not go too long on this. Um, 
it it pushes it that way. And oh, like I'll circle it back to us. You and I were both unholy menaces early on in our days of public education, uh, in part because I think we were ahead of some of the learning curve. And we were beneficiaries of a program that had the philosophy of basically like put kids who learn in different ways together um, so that the classes can be more on pace and that like everyone benefits more from that. Um, so I really think back to that and how I think it was a good thing. And I don't know where I personally would have ended up without that diversion. And if I'd continued on the path that we were on in grades three, really. Um, so just on that behalf, I see like these moves, by the way, California um, pulled back on this there. It's more recommended. They're trying to think about it after like a lot of pushback on the initial call to like outright ban it as this district in Cambridge has done or the district of Cambridge, excuse me. I hope I didn't drone too long on this one, stupid or terrible. I think it's funny that when we saw the stuff in Florida happen, the meme itself of uh, trying to ban letters that identify as numbers, right? Something that identifies as something else, that that was the meme, that algebra was next, and now it's actually happening, obviously for different reasons. But it, you're right, like the gap is the the key point to all of this is you're taking out something that maybe is white dominated right now but what you're really doing by taking it out is further widening the gap of of financial inequity and that lends to even probably being more heavily white dominated with the balance of of where the financial power lies in in the united states so it's stupidly terrible on on the part of the I guess whatever governing body decided to ban it and uh hopefully we can see some more creative solutions from them in the future there's actually a wonderful one in dallas texas of all places where mm. these students instead of being asked if they want to opt in are asked if they want to opt out and guess what like a lot of people don't opt out of these like honors programs and across all racial groups the enrollment in these advanced programs went up and white kids also went up but so did black kids and so did hispanic kids and the rate of passing like kids didn't seem to do worse so it's just an all-around win i think the overall message that i'm hearing is kids are too lazy to opt in or opt out of something so yes. just set them on the trajectory succeed and they'll forget to opt out and it'll be better for them in the long run the new harvard policy everyone is enrolled yeah all right we can get to sports now as one of the biggest of sporting events of the year headlined by one of the biggest sporting matchups of the year of the decade Maybe I'm, of course, talking about the Wimbledon uh, championships and the final they had in the men's ATP tour between Novak Djokovic and Carlitos Alcaraz. Oh, I take it the family tradition died on this one, as you were alluding to. Yeah, I was uh, too busy booking my ticket to British Columbia on Sunday with Pipe Ultimate uh, out of Toronto. So I uh, did qualify for nationals on Sunday, was unable to catch the, the Wimbledon match. 
it's a consolation, I guess, to watching <laughs> one of the better tennis matches that's yes. occurred in the last few years. Uh, there's a new number one in tennis, so that's going in. This was Novak's surface. This was a tournament he had won four times in a row, seven times in total. This was supposed to be the surface with the steepest learning curve. Um, like it, what happens if Alcaraz won really wasn't something discussed that much heading into the match. But I think one of the first thoughts heading out is like right now, you can't deny there's like a new king on the tour. Another ridiculous result for Alcaraz, just um, the last three majors he's competed in, he's reached the semifinals and all the finals in two of them, one, two of them. If you go back to Wimbledon, I think he lost to Sinner in the quarters, the French before that, um, the quarters again to Zverev. Uh, so like a very ridiculous run stretch in a very short time uh this dominance isn't just about this tournament but it's the exclamation mark in it and the learning curve as i mentioned on full display in this match because after one set you had no idea if it was even going to be a match Djokovic swept it in about 30 minutes six to one and you really saw in a nutshell why Djokovic has been so good on this surface for so long and why someone in his role and archetype, the dedicated athlete who's maintained his body's health, who is such a knowledge and understanding and chess master of the game, uh, is able to pick apart these players on the surface that they play on for maybe three weeks a year. Um, the, the experience and the tactics made such a difference in that first set. He had this poise where whatever happened in the rallies, he knew if he could just lob it, get it deep on the baseline and reset the rally, he would be able to build the point and find his moment uh, just drawing an error or producing a winner. And then I don't know what Alcaraz's tactics or thought process was during that first set. If it was watch and observe, just try and tread water and, and Till I make my move, but he sure made his move in the second set. Um, it looked like an entirely different player out there in terms of maybe I shouldn't be too unfair. The first set, there were plenty of great moments and rallies from Alcaraz. He had break points in Djokovic's first service game. He was in it in a lot of his, and it was small margins. Djokovic was winning by. He just won them a lot of the time. Uh, it was certainly a change of script, though, in that second set. Like, Alcaraz, it was just like, wait a second. I can hit harder than this guy on the forehand. I have a great backhand. I'm super explosive, can move really well, and can drop shot the ball and, like, know all the tactics. I, like, I can win a lot of baseline rallies. And that was one of the huge things that won him this the match like as it went on something that was an advantage for Djokovic in the first set and against almost anyone else on the tour became a disadvantage for him something he really had to fight and struggle and like find a lucky punch to win a lot of points and when you're doing that all the time even the points that should be easy get a little less easy and maybe that's why the return game fell off more than you thought. Maybe that's part of why the serving fell off. I did notice 
like the fourth set that Djokovic came back and won was probably one of the ones where we were talking about the wind the least from the commentary. Uh, I do think the spot serving of Djokovic versus the power serving of Alcaraz, where it's more about sending it out wide and so hard and fast that Djokovic can't get it, or sending it into his body so quickly he's just handcuffed, whereas Novak, he's not hitting it quite as fast, quite as hard, but when his accuracy is on point, when he's just touching the line on both sides and get making a mental game, that's when his serving really excels. And when it's so windy that he can't go for those margins, uh, I think the first serve gets a bit lost as he has to put it more in the middle and it's just more gettable. And like I said, it's not a uniquely hard or fast serve. Uh, I think both of those things led into the tie break which i think has been discussed a lot that was really the only close set of the macho the rest all decided by like one or two breaks mostly two um the tie break the really key part was Djokovic had set points on alcaraz's serves and he flubbed them both with backhand errors into the net at least one of those was on a second serve seeing it back to back was just hard to believe like of course he all you don't expect any player to not have some laps over four and a half hours of tennis. But the narrative with Djokovic was like the unforced errors in the French, uh, playing his best when it mattered most, or playing so unbelievably determined after making that lapse that you forget the laps happened in the first place. Well, Alcaraz just didn't give him a chance uh, in that third set to try and fight it back. I don't know if you heard about the marathon 26-minute game, 32-point, uh, like 14-point breaker game that gave Alcaraz the double break that let him run away with the third set, 6-1. But we could do a whole episode on that on its own, um, just to say it was an incredible battle of nerves uh, and really a momentum point in the match it's a credit to Djokovic that he was able to come back and win that fourth set because it really didn't feel clear that that was for sure going to happen after the third uh, oh. then both had their chances in the fifth ultimately it came down to the fact that Alcaraz was able to capitalize on the break points he had on Djokovic's serve in the third game and Djokovic wasn't able to capitalize the break point he produced on Alcaraz's service game early in that fifth set when Alcaraz's confidence was probably the most shattered feeling like here we go I've seen the script of Djokovic winning grand slams in five sets so many times and the last incredibly impressive thing from Alcaraz I wanted to talk about was just the serving out of the match uh on on the final game serving for it I think he put all but one of his first serves in after uh error in a drop shot on the first rally of that game he was iron tight um went back to what i was saying that the aggressiveness the ability to make Djokovic pay for anything less than like killer poise um it, it it's what won him the match slowly but it was completely on that dis display in that final game i'll say it one more time there's a new king in men's tennis it's carlos alcaraz the clay court I don't know if specialist is the word, um, but early in his career, that was easily described as his best surface. The one he won his first titles on now that he's won Grand Slams at the US and Wimbledon and not been even to Roland Garros finals. That uh, statement feels a little funny, but undeniably 
able to compete at the highest level on all three surfaces so incredibly young so bizarrely complete at that young age and seems so hungry so determined so mentally strong already uh this is a goat level player oh and as much as i feel like a little cringy saying those words like that's the terms in the public discourse that we use to describe people like carlitos alcaraz certainly on a special trajectory um when he was born there have only been four winners of wimbledon until the time that he won now right yeah i mean he's so good that like i know there's all these headlines coming out like the big three era is over but like if you look back like people will stretch in and include murray to call it the big four era to just like mm -hmm. really accentuate the dominance over a longer period of time like yep. if all the finals just go between alcaraz and Djokovic for the next three four years i feel like the discourse will just find a way to merge alcaraz into that name dropping. Yeah. no i think we're obviously Djokovic will continue his stellar play for a number of years still but this young crop of upcoming tennis players is certainly changing changing the tide here it's also exciting like has Djokovic been on cruise control a little even if consciously he's like focusing as much as he can like he hasn't he hasn't had this situation like I think he could chalk up the Medvedev US open final loss to being exhausted at the end of a grueling year with so much aspiration placed on the match and I think though um like he had that incredibly grueling semi-final against Zverev before uh, and he was looking to make so much history. I think on his most dominant surface in recent years, on, um, at a time where he hadn't had a particularly rough run to the final, he actually like had a record few number of breaks against him this Wimbledon run. I don't think any of those excuses are there. So I think and I hope this forces him to confront himself and his game in a way that makes him even better scary thought i do want to take a minute to talk about the women's as well because i feel a little guilty towards marketa vondrusova for not having ever said her name once on this podcast and then her having gone and won the wimbledon final most notably when i had the chance to in the semi-final as she was the one name i didn't say so let's talk a little about her oh and then maybe i'll try and excuse myself a little um 20 a few years ago she as a 19 year old five years ago she made it to the grand slam final at roland garros dang it's not up yet i think um and then has suffered a lot of injury had a career record of like four and ten on grass i think had won like one on four at wimbledon been to the second round once uh, from her second round onward, because she was 40th seed in the world at the time, she had to face seeded opponents. And then she comes into this final against Ons Jabur, who's like had a hit list of a draw to get to that final, um, is playing incredible tennis, has a game so suited to grass. Von Trusova showed that she had a game suited to Jaburo. 
the lefty just neutralized the power of the forehand that Jabor used to produce a lot of advantages in rallies. And from there, it was just a guessing game for Ons. Um, as she tried to drop shot, which Von Trusova seemed to be able to get to and just pow down so frequently at the net. Um, and then as the backhand was like not doing what she or not getting the shot responses she wanted either uh error free or low error tennis from von trusova forcing jabur to look for those margins that we talked about before that when she's not finding them her game really disappears and also an incredibly tumultuous match it i think it was only an hour and a half and felt like a runaway for von trusova at the end um but there were like seven eight breaks of serves in those two sets and uh jabur was ahead by a break in both of them so incredible fortitude um by the check-in player to just always believe in herself and play the next game like the last one hadn't happened uh i think that ultimately the last ability that was able to get in Holmes's head as it was pretty heartbreaking to watch her realize this was going to be 0 for 3 in the grand slam finals it dawned on her a little once she was down and break in the second set and then it really hit her when she had to pick up that uh, second place trophy on the Wimbledon final, she publicly said, like, this is the most terrible loss of my career. Um, but in the next breath, talking about how she'll be back, she'll be better, and she's more determined to win a Grand Slam. So having spent all this time talking about this big three that seemed to be brewing on the women's side of tennis, who had won the last five slams in a row, and then seen none of them even make it, into the finals i'm a little on the back foot for the wta tour um i think there's a couple ways the tour could go and it feels particularly wide open after this result which i find incredibly interesting so one narrative going into after Iga Shviatek lost and Arnia Sabalenka was still in was that Sabalenka could become the number one player with Sabalenka losing to Jabur, Iga will remain that and one possibility heading into the future is Iga just continues to be that player. Um, grass, not a surface she's played her best tennis at yet. And this tournament was one of great progress for her. So it's hard to know where she'll be at next year. There does seem to be a general upward trajectory as long as injuries haven't been hampering her. Um, so if she has a good fall, if she's successful at the Masters, um and she can just go and like do the same thing at the u.s open she did last year maybe this big three talk kind of dissipates depending how sabalenka and ribikina do and it's just iga shviatek is the best female player in the world maybe that happens somewhat but it's also shviatek and sab or excuse me sabalenka and ribikina um keeping up with that pace of play as they did through the first half of 2023 and we really stay just where we were and look at this Wimbledon as a bit of a blip. And maybe Ons Jabur inserts herself into that conversation as well. As I said, she's been at three um, major finals in the past five. So uh, Iga Sviatek, the only player uh, of the five name, four names I've said, who also has that resume. So the only thing separating Ons is a major win and maybe a little more success at the Masters events. And then the last thing, 
this was a chaotic Wimbledon. The women's tour really has been, I don't want to say plagued, but I'm struggling to think of another word for it. Um, there has been no one to like sit on the throne and occupy it since Serena uh, dropped off first her game and eventually retired it seemed like it might be osaka it seemed like it might be bardi now it seems like it might be iga uh, but we still don't know and the us open oh is the women's major that embodies that the most in the last eight years only naomi osaka has won it twice i i don't think any other grand slam has that stat for the last eight years uh, and not only has Naomi only won it twice, but the only other player to even appear in the finals twice besides Osaka is Serena Williams. And that the Bianca and Naomi appearances going years back then. So the US Open, the hardest major, just because it comes um, more towards the end of the calendar, so much injury already present. So maybe it's just always been a wild card tournament, Swashek winning it last year reflected that and it continues to be a wild card tournament this coming year but yeah the july lull of tennis starts now before those masters events pick up in august a lot of fallout um it's good to have some time to digest and process the rankings the stats the vibes all the things we love about tennis as they are it was a fantastic wimbledon Congratulations to the champions, congratulations to the finalists, congratulations to a lot of other um, wonderful runs that happened this year. Um, insert complaints about grass slipping, injuries, uh, not closing the roof, being obtuse, and general traditionalism making the tournament worse than it necessarily has to be because I refuse to talk about Wimbledon and not mention all that stuff. And looking forward to doing it again next year. And in the uh, meantime, in this July lull, we'll uh, we'll get up to speed on Breakpoint. There you go. All right, uh, give me a break here because I need to catch my breath. Yeah, um, not too much to cover besides tennis in this pod, but wanted to give a shout out to Cam Whitmore, right? Uh, a guy in the NBA draft who. A lot of people had projected in the lottery there was a time where he could be considered a, a top five level talent and and prospect in in this year's draft and he fell down boards with a mixture of injury concerns as well as culture fit concerns and naturally when there's someone who has culture fit concerns he's going to land in either portland or houston and the rockets drafted him in the late lottery here ended up being a steal with how far he actually ended up falling. Uh, a couple of those teams played chicken with one another and, and wouldn't take him. And he showed up in summer league, really explosive all around package as a scorer uh, can finish at the rim uh, in the mid range and, and has a, a pure three point stroke. So really exciting to see him. Um, I'm curious to see, how many people in that backcourt are going to want the ball here early on in this season. They've got a bit of a, a clogged backcourt with Fred Van Vliet, Dylan Brooks, Jalen Green, uh, Kevin Porter Jr., right? So who's going to eat? Is Cam Whitmore going to get to see some touches? Houston's got 
some stuff to figure out here early season, uh, but not a terrible problem to have that one of your late uh, first round picks turns into something that could potentially be special. In the end, Cam Whitmore and his Houston Rockets lose in the final to Isaiah Mobley and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So the other Mobley showing out in summer league named the championship MVP. Uh, I know your sister has met both of them when they were at USC, uh, but nice to see them now thriving on the same team as well in, in Cleveland. Yeah, and I remember those, or going back to Whitmore, I remember on draft night just watching the tweets of everyone like around like 10 onwards being like, come on, are you crazy? Like, fucking go for it. Um, yeah yeah uh, one other piece of basketball news not related to the sport directly caught my attention um, Matt Ishbia new owner has been aggressively pushing this deal there was a bit of a contract hiccup but it seems to have been settled um, and the Phoenix Suns and Mercury have reached a deal with the Gray TV organization, which owns stations throughout the state of Arizona to broadcast all non-nationally exclusive games. I've had a bit of a hard time figuring out exactly what this means for Arizona residents and the rest of the world. Um, as it's been mentioned, you can broadcast both receive on broadcast and stream all of these games for free. Um, so at its best, that means if you live in the state of Arizona, you can just go on the internet and watch the Phoenix Suns anytime they're playing and uh, it's not on national television. And this isn't totally unfamiliar to us as Canadians. This is how we watch the Stanley Cup Finals, the Western and Eastern Conference semifinals, and how we watch our local teams in the playoffs. Uh, just a couple of series we can't get on like national um, public broadcasting. Um, it's something we're severely lacking at other times in the sports calendar, though, having to pay about 50 bucks a month to two different sports regional providers to be able to watch all our hometown games. Um, so seeing this direction where, no, you, you can just watch all of your team's games for free on the internet because it's 2023 is really welcome to me. Oh, and I hope it signals change for the league. Money's king though. Like the, no, until we see the financial details and how this trickles out, it's hard to know if how well this will stick. Yeah, I, I know Matt Ishbia mentioned it briefly on the Bill Simmons podcast. That's where the the introduction to this story kind of showed up. But it's it's a great idea to build fandom and viewership in the state, right? You're competing with the Arizona Cardinals. You're not really competing with the Coyotes. Um, and then you're really just competing with the state itself, right? It's so lovely in Arizona in the winter when the NBA season is happening. So why am I going to sit inside and watch TV when I could be doing other activities? So you're not necessarily competing with other sports or other entertainment, but you're competing with people's time as well and what they're choosing to do. And so lowering those barriers to entry for individuals is just going to grow that viewership base, which has a greater lifetime value uh, as, as growing them as fans and as customers. Uh, when you continue to improve the, the packaging and the 
uh, product that you're giving to them. So I think it's a great move with a long-term vision in mind. And this Suns team is going to be really good with uh, Bradley Beal potentially as the starting point guard. Uh, and so fascinated to see what what viewership looks like here with the with the big names slated to to begin in the fall. There's this amazing bit I found of some local Arizona TV station talking about it, like the deal. And then in the last 20, 30 seconds, they talked about the Suns prospect for the seasons and just mm -hmm. watching these three people who like are so peripherally peripherally aware of basketball talk about it for 30 seconds was honestly the highlight of my day mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is you're also competing against streaming sites like yep. more people I know watch sports on streaming sites than pay for them um because sometimes you actually get like less commercials and a better product yeah. Uh, with these service sites. Um, so when that's the nature of the market and there is this free option, um, like it's it's Napster and disruptive technology kind of all over again is my hope and that this signals a move from a business model. And supporting that is that like regional sports broadcast networks aren't doing well. Like most of them are dying out, making less and less money every year. Um, so I'm optimistic that this shift, there's a good chunk of people in the state of Arizona who would like choose to stream the Phoenix games instead of paying them that now this coming year will have an easier, better option and might opt for that. And it'll be interesting to see what that looks like on the data side of things. All right. And uh, Another team that I'd love to see them offer games for free, Inter-Miami. Nice. They uh, they officially announced the signing of Lionel Messi uh, yesterday, and he is set to make his debut on Friday. And it's just going to be game-changing for the MLS. Like I, I, He could have four goals in the first game, and I wouldn't be oh surprised. Or he could do nothing, and people would all of a sudden slander him and he's no longer the goat blah 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 like i've just this is one of the this may be the biggest like anticipated debut in a very long time in any sport and i'm just so so excited to watch him play in the mls it's certainly going to drive conversation um does he still play defense or striker now or like what will he he'll play, play wherever Miami? he wants to play which yeah. i'm guessing will be striker yeah uh, there is one cross-sport introduction that might rival the messy hype coming up. I can't believe I missed this last week, but it's been announced that Francis Ngannou is going to box Tyson Fury, the heavyweight champion of the world. Um, simply, it felt out of nowhere for me. I wasn't following this too closely. Um, but just, oh my goodness, Owen, this is a goddamn super fight. Um, yes, it's wolf tickets. Yes, it's basically McGregor versus Mayweather all over again, where you have this MMA power puncher fighting a boxing defensive specialist uh, with the idea being sold that the power puncher just needs to land one hit on this guy who's made a career out of beating guys who just need one hit uh, to knock you out. I I don't really see 
The one thing Ngannou has that Deontay Wilder didn't have is a proper heavyweight frame. Like Wilder was a light heavyweight who could knock heavyweights out and chose to continue as a heavyweight. And Tyson Fury made him pay for that in their fights. Um, if you try and lean on Ngannou that same way, uh, you're it's going to get a lot more physical in a way you don't like most likely. Um, but the reach, the tactics, the jab, the defensive prowess, I don't think it'll be a, an exciting fight, but it will be an incredibly exciting lead up even more for exciting than that for Mio is just the success of Francis Ngannou. Um, the backstory is legendary, going from basically being a slave in Africa to the MMA champion of the world, baddest man on the planet. And now he signs on a fight that will make him more money than he made in his entire UFC career, which is the most beautiful part of this and why I'm so glad it's happening. Um, mainly because fuck the UFC, fuck Dana White and Mick Maynard and Hunter Campbell for trying to uh, choke Ngannou's contract, offering him peanuts try and trying to like make him stay signed exclusively to them for as long as possible, uh, for trying to make him second guess the decision at every step and dragging it out and publicly slandering him for his decision to leave. And it is so beautiful to see this just gets stuck in their faces, all the more so because they tried to pull some last minute shenanigans and get Tyson Fury to fight John Jones out of nowhere. Um, which I think was just a bit of a laugh for all parties involved, not named the UFC. Um, but I'm he's already made life changing money and achieved a life changing dream. But stepping into that boxing ring is simply taking it to another level. And I'm so curious what the global hype scale reaches on this. I think McGregor Mayweather is a tough benchmark. And without with less of that natural charisma and trash talking, it's a tough sell. But that's the ballpark they're playing in. Oh. Lots of anticipation coming up. We're not we're not going into the doldrums of summer. October twenty eighth. October twenty yeah. eighth. That's yeah. not too far at all. And yeah, we'll go. We'll talk Lionel Messi. We'll talk more free agency as news comes down the pike. We've got uh, Formula One in Hungary this weekend as well. Daniel Ricardo back on the grid after Nick DeVries let go from AlphaTauri. So we get to see that coming up looking forward to that and yeah just everyone stay cool things are hot out there now in the midst of the summer so stay cool you know take a break listen to a podcast and uh, thanks for sticking with us here to the end doubling down on that this week in awesome a serial killer from New York, a cold case that kind of haunted me in high school uh, has been partially closed up so well done to the new police chief there on that. Thank you everyone for listening. This has been Sports Next Door, and we are now signing out. You get to the station, there's this crazy sound. Hey man, this ain't no fishing town. Yeah, they're fishing, that ain't all. They're all listening to that same old Yeah.